Welcome to Jonathan on Money, the personal finance podcast that brings you the latest insights and strategies to help you achieve your financial goals. I'm your host, Jonathan I. Shankman. On this podcast, we'll cover everything from investing, financial planning, retirement, and behavioral finance. I'll share advice and practical tips to help you make the most of your money. So whether you're just starting out or looking to take your finances to the next level, Jonathan on Money is here to help. Let's dive into this week's show. Welcome to today's episode. This week, we're going in focus where we explore more advanced wealth planning topics. They will discuss private foundations, the five deadly sins or excise taxes. Just by way of background, a private foundation is a type of charitable organization that is typically established by a high net worth individual, family, or corporation to support charitable activities. Private foundations must be run properly, otherwise they may face adverse taxes. There are five excise taxes unique to private foundations, which could result in crippling penalties, which would shutter any foundation's doors. This webinar will cover the rules, their application, the exceptions to the rules, and the penalties associated with them. Today, we're privileged to hear from Andrew Katzenberg, partner at Aaron Fox Schiff, where he splits his time between New York City and Washington, D.C. Andy focuses on wealth transfer planning and preservation, multi-generational planning, estate and trust administration, nonprofit and tax-exempt organizations, and charitable giving. Among his high net worth clients are hedge funds and private equity managers, business owners, art dealers, and athletes. He also represents clients in forming and managing nonprofit and tax-exempt organizations, including public charities, private foundations, and private operating foundations, and acquiring and retaining their tax-exempt status. Andy has authored numerous articles related to his field and is a frequent contributor to the New York State Bar Association's Trust and Estates Law Section newsletter and a nationally recognized lecturer. In addition to his regular practice, Andy actively engages in pro bono work and is engaged regularly for his contribution and recognized for his contribution by the New York Legal Assistance Group and the New York City Family Court Volunteer Attorney Program. Andy also serves as an adjunct professor at the University of Baltimore Law School Graduate Master's Program. Today, Andy will be speaking on private foundations, the five deadly sins or excise taxes. And with that introduction, I'll now turn the program over to Andy. Thank you, Jonathan. I appreciate you having me here today, and I appreciate everyone joining me uh, this morning to hear my presentation. Uh, so again, what we're talking about is the excise taxes for private foundations. But before uh, we begin there, what we need to clarify is, you know, what is a private foundation? And so a private foundation is a tax-exempt organization, and there are several that usually one thinks about when someone uses that term. There's public charities, there's supporting organizations, there's private operating foundations, there's donor-advised funds, uh, and then there's private foundations. Now, the excise taxes we're talking about today, they are, are special and unique that they only apply to private foundations and more or less private operating foundations. Uh, they do not apply to public charities or supporting organizations which are underneath public charities or donor advised funds which are underneath public charities uh, because those are essentially self-regulated in their own right uh, because they have outside pressures coming in, essentially donors, multiple, uh, which gives, gives oversight. Uh, the concern with a private foundation is that it is usually con uh, contributed to by a single donor or a select few donors of a family usually, and they're in control of the money. And the fear is 
There's no one to oversee it. They actually use it maybe for good, or maybe they do something wrong with it. And these uh, excise taxes are designed uh, to encourage good behavior. Uh, and if you don't follow them, then it slaps you with a very hard penalty to get you back on track. So again, that was their purpose uh, when they were created. I think it was uh, like the 1969 Act. That's when they got put in place. That's what they wanted to rein in at the time. Uh, and again, going back to the difference of, well, how do I know if these actually apply? Again, that's the first question. Do these actually apply to me at all? Uh, am I a private foundation? Well, the default rule is that all tax-exempt organizations, when they are created under Section uh, 509, they are private foundations unless you fall into an exception. So you default start as a private foundation with these rules applying. If you fall into the exception, you are a public charity, essentially, or a supporting organization, meaning that you are getting support from more than one-third of your supporters from the general public or from the government. Uh, those are things that may pull you out of the private foundation realm and put you, pull you away from these excise taxes. And again, private operating foundations are private foundations. They're just a little different and one or two of the rules don't apply to them, but generally they do. So with that, we will move on to the actual excise taxes. Now, there are actually eight excise taxes, but we're really only talking about five, which I would say are more one are unique uh, to the private foundation realm. And I'll, I'll just point out the ones that are not. So actually going in reverse order uh, here, we have uh, the unrelated business taxable income, uh, UBTI. This is again, if you are dealing uh, with, uh, you're owning some type of entity that's producing income that has nothing to do with your charitable cause. Uh, they tax you as a, essentially a normal for-profit because why should, you know, that making money for your nonprofit to spend somewhere else isn't a charitable cause in its own right. So you get normally taxed. This applies to all the tax exempt orders. Then you have exec, uh, executive compensation. Uh, this only apply, excise tax only applies if you have someone being paid over a million dollars of salary. Uh, and again, in the private, it, though it applies to private foundations, the reality is in a private foundation context, it really doesn't come up. It, it really shouldn't come up because uh, I'd be hard pressed to find a private foundation that could justify paying someone a million dollars in any capacity to run it or any other to be a director of some kind uh, in it. It just wouldn't fly. And I'd be less worried about uh, the executive comp issue than uh, some other one, maybe a self-dealing or overpayment, unnecessary uh, expenditure. So that leaves us with the other, uh, actually six here, but again, in the last one is the investment income tax, which we'll get to in a second. I really wouldn't call that. That's not quite the same as the other five, which is really self-dealing, the 5% minimum distribution rule, excess business holdings, jeopardy, investments, and taxable expenditures. Those are really the five. But just to talk quickly on the net investment income, again, this is applying uh, to private foundations. Uh, this essentially, it, I wouldn't really call it the same way as an excise tax as the others, which are punishments. This is just, it is what it is that taxes that organizations do not pay any ta income tax when they generate income. However, this small amount of 1.39%, which used to be a, a one or 2% figure uh, about five years ago uh, before the Trump Tax Act, this was changed. 
and amend it to 1.39% flat on any net investment income. Um, I really wouldn't call it kind of an excise tax, rather just it's a regular tax that they pay rather, rather than paying any of the income tax that others pay at you know, a corporate rate of 21%. Um, you know, a net invest income is typically gross income reduced by certain expenses, um, capital, you know, capital gains that amount, you pay a small little tax. So uh, nothing to really quibble about. But again, I, I wanted to mention it offhand. That's what brings us really, again, to those five excise taxes. And I, again, different from the other one that, you know, a net investment income tax, that's just a tax, not really a punishment. These rules are designed to punish bad actors, I'll call it, or on the unwary who stumble into them and to prevent them, you know, from being very careful and mindful to talk to their advisors on what they're doing and why they're doing it before they do it so we can advise them to avoid these. So the first one, I, I actually am going to use self-dealing as the last one because I want to save the most time for that. So we're actually going to skip ahead because I think that's honestly the most important one that you see people stumble over. And we're going to start with the 5% uh, minimum distribution. Uh, so the minimum distribution is... Uh, Unlike a public charity, again, that has kind of oversight from a, a board that is diverse and design is there to give away and do some sort of cause with donors all across the globe or all across the country, or all across the city, that if they see you're not spending the money right, are going to stop giving you the money and it's going to dry up. Uh, and or will reach out personally to the attorney general of your state, who usually is oversight uh, for tax exempt organizations to encourage you to actually give away money. If you're a private foundation, you are private. There is no one there to really oversee you but yourself. Uh, and if you do a, a the most basic, which is you have a matriarch or patriarch who creates a foundation, they plop in a million dollars or 10 million or a hundred million dollars into it. There's no one to tell them that they have to give it away or to say, hey, why haven't you done this? There's the, the AG technically is there as well, but admittedly their oversight is minimal. And there's no one that's going to usually whistleblow on these folks because again, it's really just them. So the rules are designed to make sure they actually give money away. This is one of the issues that people just to throw out that talk about donor-advised funds, which don't have this rule. And are they really giving all the money quick enough to charities? Or is it just sitting at this foundation and you use uh, in order as a pass-through for a tax, you know, to get a tax deduction while you think about it? So what you must give away is 5% of essentially the total fair market value is how you should look at it of the foundation. However, that number is uh, starts at 5% and is reduced by various items. So it almost is impossible for it to ever really be 5% of your fair market value. For example, um, any uh, you're allowed to have cash on hand of approximately 1.5% of your fair market value. That is not included. It's, it's viewed as money operating money. So that reduces what the fair market value is. So again, it's not 5% of the whole from there. Uh, you also have things like normal operating expenses, which are re reduced the fair market value, which actually count for a take back count towards the minimum distribution. So money spent on operating, like salaries, if you, if you will get to the salary issue, but if you have employees that you have, are paying salaries to, that actually qualifies as part of the 5% distribution. So again, the amount going out for travel causes is slowly going to be less than 5% of what your actual fair market value is. Um, so that's the first thing. And again, it's not in a reasonable position because you, you view it from, you know, get Jonathan on the horn and you get him investing your money. 
you know, you, you're going to hope he's able, you know, if he can beat 5% or equal 5% return on the growth, then you're going to be just eating into your income and you can reserve your endowment, the principal, and the foundation essentially should be perpetual from that because that position. Again, uh, the other part, this rule does not, this is what the one rule that doesn't apply to private operating foundations. The reason is an operating foundation essentially is to qualify for one is using 80% of its assets has to meet several tests, one of which is 80% of its assets are being used towards charitable causes. So it's already giving away, it's actually using so much of its funds into the charitable context, there is no need to actually require to give more away. It's already giving more away or using more away for charitable uh, causes anyway. So that's the logic why it doesn't have to apply. Uh, the other important factor with this 5% minimum distribution is that if you give more in one year, there's a carryover for five years. So if in one year, again, if, if it's, we're not really worried about this, you know, worry about this really for bad actors, but if you're just in the normal course, you know, you're talking to the charities you give to and you plot out, you know, we give a hundred thousand a year that gets us the 5% great. And we give to these 10 charities or two charities, whatever it is you're giving to. But then in one year comes up and you say, Hey, my university is doing, you know, a capital raise to build a, you know, a dormitory. And I, I want to give more, I want to be the lead donor on this. And I'm, instead of giving a hundred thousand this year, I'm going to give a million dollars to this. And so now you've given, obviously, instead of the hundred, which was what you needed to give for 5%, you know, you gave 10 times that, um, that hundred million, that, that million dollars, the first hundred would qualify for the current year, but balance the 900,000 rolls over to the, the next five years. So if you choose to not give anything away, you still would have met the 5% test. So the next five years, again, if it's only 100,000, you'd use up another 500,000 would qualify for the minimum distribution. At year end of year five, with the 400 that was remaining, it would just disappear off, you know, off your uh, 990 PF. And you'd have to start over at zero where come essentially year six, you have to give away another 100,000. Um, again, you know, when talking to your tax professional, you should consider, you know, does it make sense? I want to give, you know, a million dollars to my alma mater. I'll give mine, Tufts University. I want to give a million dollars to Tufts University to name, you know, the Andy Katzenberg, you know, dining hall. Uh, and, you know, I realize, hey, maybe instead of giving them a million this year, uh, and they, I give them 300,000. And I tell them, pledge to them, I'm going to give you a million but I'm going to draw it out over several years, talking to the development office saying, well, when do you need these payments by? And they may say, well, it's going to take three years. So, you know, obviously they want it all up front, but they also will be more than happy to say, well, if you want to do a 300, 300, 300, we're fine with that. And by spreading it out, it rolls the clock on each of those 300 blocks to a, one more year out. So again, by breaking that up, what I have been able to do and again, let's say 100,000 is my is what I need. By breaking it up, the six hundred, the first 600,000 would entirely get used up. Uh, and then the actual, the last uh, bit, I would end up getting another 100,000 on my last one and only end up wasting 200,000 of that uh, minimum distribution again. So that in the future, if there was a point where you didn't want to spend 100,000 in a given year for whatever reason, because you were saving it up, because you couldn't make a decision in that year, um, you don't have to. So again, that's uh, something that, again, why you want to speak with your 
you know, tax professionals to make sure you don't just say, oh, here, I want to give and I give. Give in the smartest way is always the best way. So then we have next excess business holdings. So excess business holdings is designed to uh, prevent, and I should mention one last thing, I didn't, and I'll mention these others. The tax on the distribution, if you don't do this, is 30% uh, on the undistributed amount that you were supposed to give away. And if you don't give it away and essentially get caught, meaning the IRS sends you a deficiency notice, it can move up to 100% of that amount. And obviously, you know, that's the point. These uh, penalties are very, very high, which goes to excess business withholdings example. It's a 10% tax. Well, that's not that bad. You get a, a client who's like, I, I can handle 10%. That's not too bad. It was worth it. It's 10% each year. So in the first year that you had held excess business withholdings, it's a 10% on that number. And then the next year is another 10%. Oh, and by the way, it can move up to 200%, which obviously is... More, some more than the whole, which is problematic for everyone. And what is excess business withholdings? It is the idea that you, as a private foundation, a tax-exempt organization doing nonprofit work, are not supposed to be owning and operating a private, you know, a for-profit company. So if you have more than 20% of the voting stock with in the aggregate with disqualified persons, which we'll talk a little more about. Again, for a moment, think of it as the donor, the primary donor in this, but there's more people and we'll get there when we get self-dealing. If you and the primary donor have more than 20% of the voting stock of a business, it could be a corporation, it can be an LLC, it doesn't matter, um, then that is excess business holdings. You're essentially owning a for-profit and we're not going to let you essentially shield, you know, do uh, for-profit work and shield you know, the income in a private foundation. That's what it's designed to, to get against. You, know, you should be not running businesses. Um, however, uh, there is an exception there that moves up that 30, that 20% uh, to 35%. And this is if that you don't have 35% of the voting stock and somebody else has effective control. Someone else is actually running the company and you're 35% does not so if you have another owner who actually this make it very simple 65% of the stock and you have 35 with your foundation in the don the main donor uh, and that other person is not anyway connected to the donor or the foundation they have effective control because they have the majority vote it would be up to 35% you could hold without this coming into play um, now again there is a whole bunch of exceptions when it comes to this uh, whether it's passive, whether you have a de minimis amount uh, of stock, uh, you know, at the end of the day, you know, that the foundation itself has a de minimis amount of stock. Uh, if you receive the gift, uh, you receive by gift rather than purchasing a business, you know, you didn't have a choice that you were handed, you know, 50% in an active business. You didn't make that choice. Why should I be penalized for what someone gave me? They give you a, an exception there that you have five years uh, from the date you received it to essentially get rid of it. You can request an additional five years uh, from the IRS, not guaranteed, but most likely you would receive it. So you can up to a 10-year runway to extricate yourself from this asset because they don't want you to have to sell on a fire sale because if I know you have to give it away or be subject to a 200% tax, you certainly will sell me that company at you know 50 cents on the dollar. Um, but again, this issue comes up when, again, someone dies and leaves as a bequest uh, to somebody or, you know, wants to get the foundation, uh, you know, or give their business to the foundation because they don't have really heirs, they want it involved in some way. 
Now, one of the new exceptions that came up that I think uh, is worth letting people know about, which was supposed to be in the 2017 Tax Act. It didn't make it because of the Budget uh, Reconciliation Act, the whole issue with the Senate and the, uh, you know, the Congress and the Senate, uh, both them coming together, you know, and there's a $1.5 billion uh, or trillion uh, billion, $1.5 billion that the difference in what they propose when it comes to the cost, uh, th this would have increased it. So they had to pull it out. Uh, but then it got found its way into the Budget Act of 2018. And this is known as the Newman's Own Exception. This exception has a whole bunch of pieces to it uh, of requirements. It was really designed for one. That's, uh, you know, if you go get your uh, salad dressing at the grocery store, your Big Newtons with Newman, you know, Newman's Own and his, uh, Mr. Paul Newman's face on it. Uh, he left his entire uh, business to his charity. Uh, and basically they've been lobbying. This was about now in 2018, that was all, that was, you know, nine and a half years after he had died or had and given it to them. And so they were coming up on their 10 year clock, but they were going to have to get rid of this. And so they lobbied very hard for the last, you know, several years to get this exception put in there that essentially is saying we, everything is going to charity. You know, there's no way we can manipulate this. And they put these rules really for this one entity. The odds that you could fall into it are very unlikely unless you are so, you know, again, you're very, very, very charitable and you don't want your family involved in one side of the business, then you might be able to get, get there. But again, that requires you really just almost moving the private foundation more into a public charity space than a private foundation space, though still being a, a private foundation. Uh, but again, something to be mindful of if you ever find yourself in that situation. Um, then we have uh, Jeopardy Investments. Now, Jeopardy Investments, uh, again, 10% tax on each Jeopardy investment applied each year. Um, and if not corrected, it's uh, a 25% tax if you don't do that. Uh, again, these are, you know, you have, if you give, you know, if someone, if you do this, you have to unwind it. That's the way to undo it. So it means you have to liquidate the asset, whatever it is, get out of that investment. Um, this occurs basically. It's a kind of a prudent standard uh, test that you know when when you were investing in X asset, was it a prudent, reasonable uh, investment based on the long term, long term and short term financial needs of the foundation, based on all the facts and circumstances in the moment? There's no, no hindsight that if you went into 100% gold and you know the market crashes and oh look gold does amazing you actually made a ton of money it's still a jeopardy investment or the contrary is you go into investments and it tanked and it was a bad investment that doesn't mean it was a jeopardy investment it's the investment did bad so we, we don't go back in, in hindsight saying how well you did at the end of the day it's in the moment did this make sense uh based on all of our needs or essentially were you being risky Okay, are you a divert? Are you diversified? Is there a reason why you're spreading it out? You did a little bit in hedge funds. You did a little bit in uh, gold. You did a little bit in the equities market. You did a little bit in bonds. And there's no one size fits all. But again, you want to make sure that you know you're on the straight and narrow with this. It, again, there's a whole, there's exceptions for program related investments, so you could be kind of concentrated because a program related investment um, essentially is a charitable you know investment idea. It's carved out in the code. Um, and then secondly, if you were given a gift. Again, the Jeopardy investment is about you taking a manager, your manager, making a decision, an active action that could put the foundation in jeopardy. If you were given something, a gift that, you know, $10 million in a single stock, um, you haven't made any decisions. So you haven't made an actual Jeopardy. You haven't made an investment yourself. You've been handed a gift. So until you touch it, 
and change something in it. And that could mean changing something in the terms of that agreement. Um, it is not a Jeopardy investment, even if otherwise it would have been. Uh, so again, if someone's giving you something, if an owner wants to give you 100% of a company, well, not 100%, but a large portion of some company, you don't have to get out of that stock or that, that interest. Uh, then there's also mission-related investments. This is notice uh, 2015-62. Again, this is uh, there's only so many program-related uh, pro can't say it uh, program-related investments that are listed in the code. So it's kind of an open area of what else can qualify for outside of uh, program-related investments. This is mission-related. Essentially, when you invest, it doesn't have to be the main goal. Doesn't have to be to return capital. You know, ret your return. It can be return, and this does good. This will do um, some type of charitable return there, and it can qualify. So this gives you a little broader strokes on what you're investing in and pulls away on, you know, why did you put so much in here? Because it's having some positive charitable purpose behind it. Uh, then you have the taxable expenditures. Again, 20% tax per uh, taxable expenditure, 100% if you don't correct it. Essentially, this is making, using charitable money on expense that is not charitable. Uh, the, if this is influencing legislation, uh, influencing a, an election, again, you can't do stuff. The private foundations cannot touch uh, political action activity anyway. And this you know, is a penalty here for it. You also could lose your entire exemption if you do that as well. Uh, granting to individuals, you can't give to individuals unless it falls into an exception. Uh, you can't grant to... Uh, other organizations, uh, unless it falls to an exception. And again, anything, essentially, it's a non-tax exempt purpose uh, is what's going on here. Uh, so that's that. And our last one we're going to hit, and I say for last because I want to make sure I give enough time to it, uh, is self-dealing. Self-dealing is the most common one. I think people really do fall under 10% uh, tax for each act applied each year can go up to 200%. Again, this is one to hammer you over the head if you really go around, get over it. Uh, self-dealing is any act, direct or indirect, between the foundation and disqualified person. It's irrelevant if it's in the best interest of the foundation. There's numerous exceptions, however. But again, we don't want to see disqualified people interacting, using the money of the foundation in some way that ultimately benefits them when you've given it away to charity. It just seems too sticky. It seems like too much manipulation, and that's what this is designed to prevent. Now, the first, there's two pieces to this. One it's only self-dealing if you're dealing with a disqualified person. And as we mentioned, you know, some of the other tests that refer to disqualified persons. So we need to make sure we understand the definitions there. And this is one that anytime you're trying to figure out, are you dealing with a disqualified person? You want to look at the rules. You want to look at section 49, 46, and then actually uh, 267, which is the attribution rules. Everyone understands the basics that the main contributor, you know, the grant that gives, you know, the $10 million to the foundation, they're a disqualified person. But there's a whole host of other people that also qualify for this. The, the fact, whoever you put in as manager, which may be the same people, um, any family member connected, you know, to that person, the spouse, ancestors, children, grandchildren, great grandchildren. Again, all of them are disqualified. So your kids are disqualified. So any action with them. Uh, then you have, you know, estates and trusts can, are also going to be disqualified individuals if the people who are beneficial interest or in control of thirty up to thirty five percent of it fall into any of the categories above. Uh, and then same with a, a, if you have a corporation that's a contributor, the individuals that own greater than 20% of it, they're also disqualified individuals. So you could have uh, some comp your company give money to the, a private foundation and your buddy who could have 25, 
percent of the company, he's a disqualified member too, even though it's your foundation. So again, you want to check these rules every time, making sure you're dealing with it. Then we get to okay, self-dealing. Before I get to the necessary exception, self-dealing examples, real quick. We have if you loan money, let's go. With, you, the, the foundation needs money, it, it, you know, and it, to go. And everything's a liquid. It has. It has. It owns a bunch of real estate for whatever reason, and it cannot. It was gifted the real estate, let's say, and it cannot. Uh, you know, needs money to actually do the charitable causes it wants or meet the five percent minimum distribution test. Where is it going to get it? And you say, hey, how about I loan the money? You know, it couldn't get it from a bank, and I'll instead of loaning it five percent, which is you know what the rates are going for these days, why not? I'll do it for two percent. You know, I'm going to give it a deal better than it could get anywhere else. Is that self dealing? Yes, that's direct. That is direct self dealing. Because the disqualified person is benefiting by the 2% that it's getting foundation dollars back in its hand. Can't do it, even though it seems, you know, even though it's best for the foundation. Um, I own an office um, foundation and I'm the disqualified party. Foundation asked me, hey, can I borrow, uh, can I use some office space? And, and I say, sure. And you know what? I'm going to charge you half as much rent as I would anyone else in New York per square foot. So you're getting a great deal. Still self-dealing. The only way around those is you don't charge any type of fee, and essentially you're donating the money, you know, lending it free, you know, with no interest, or lending the office space free. Eventually, you can get it back, but you're not getting anything. Again, nothing's coming back to that disqualified party. The last thing I want to mention, that I see time has almost run out, is that people run into with self-dealing is employing disqualified people as part of the foundation where you have a son or daughter or yourself, if you say, hey, I want, I'm the director or I'm running this, shouldn't I get paid? I would like, or I would like my children to get paid because maybe, you know, you're concerned they're not going to get that great a job or just, you know, they're going to be doing good. Well, that's on itself, it's face, that's self-dealing. They are all disqualified people being paid by the foundation, getting benefit money from the foundation. Uh, however, you know, there's two exceptions there. And again, one is it has to be reasonable compensation. And it has to be for a, essentially a managerial job at the foundation. That's, you, know, you have to do it. Someone's going to have to do this probably and get paid. So reasonable comp part is that that's a little easier. If you have a son who just got out of college uh, and has no experience working on a foundation, has no experience in life, essentially, there's no reason why he should be getting $150,000 to, to run the foundation. I mean, even that would be excessive. He just doesn't have the experience. It wouldn't be reasonable based on his skill set. Uh, plus, you have to figure out what someone in that position anyway would get paid, even if they were qualified. So that's issue one. Second is uh, if you have if it's a managerial role. So there's certain roles, such as um, banking, investment advisor, and legal, which are in the regulations that are qualified for these kind of managerial roles. There's a few PLRs that kind of expand this. Uh, there's only a handful, so there's a little bit of a gray area if you, once you get outside of those realms. Uh, the last couple in 2016 and 2019 essentially said uh, management of real estate uh, qualify. Another was um, program doing the program, the grant making, the consulting also qualified essentially as managerial roles. That last one kind of opened it up a little more where I think a little more comfort prior to that ruling than having someone in that role. And best practice really is telling your client, um, no, just volunteer your time. Don't get paid. It simplifies the heck out of this. And we don't have to run into issues because what's going to happen is over time, you're, the client's going to, you get blessed what the client's doing. Client's going to, over the years, start increasing the salary. Oh, it's inflation adjustment, but they're not going to talk to you about it until they come to you five years later and you bring in that you're talking about it. And they say, yeah, my son's getting paid a quarter million dollars now. And you say, why? And you say, you know, you, these, 
looks like it's, you know, self-dealing and, you know, you could be in trouble for this. And you have to unwind it one by taking the money back is the only way to correct it. And the money might not be there. And again, you could create a foundation. You can give your son money or you can give your daughter money. Uh, that, that, that should be where you should be advising clients. And if they force it, you know, find a way that fits in, but make sure they're following the rules. So I think that is my time. I've gone over a few minutes, but uh, I appreciate everyone uh, listening. If anyone, uh, my contact information, I believe is on the slide. I believe obviously Jonathan can provide it to you. Um, and, you know, if you have any question, further questions, feel free to reach out. I'm always uh, happy to chat on any issues. I love hearing good, interesting topics that come up from uh, advisors out there. Uh, just look at me as another resource. Well, thank you so much, Andy, for that succinct overview of such an important and relevant topic to many high net worth families. I thought that was extremely informative. Be mindful that if you have a private foundation or are thinking of establishing one, as this episode outlined, there are important rules to be mindful of. Do yourself a favor and get the right professionals in place to set up the foundation, help keep it compliant, and manage the assets when appropriate. Cutting corners in this regard is too risky and won't end well. And with that, this is a wrap for this week's show. Any comments or questions, feel free to reach out directly to me via email. I love hearing from my listeners. And finally, as I end every episode, the secret to financial success is no secret at all. It's to spend less than you make, invest the difference prudently, ignore all the noise. See you next time on Shank Phenom Money. Thank you for joining me on today's episode. I hope you were able to take away a nugget or two to apply to your own life. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast so you can be alerted whenever new episodes drop. If you'd like to submit a question that may be answered in a future show, please email me at jonathan at parkbridgewealth.com. Be sure to check out all Jonathan on Money content, including all my articles, webinars, and videos by following me at Jonathan on Money on Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Finally, if you like what you heard today, please rate the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This helps ensure that other personal finance enthusiasts can find the show as well. Thank you and catch you on the next episode of Jonathan on Money.